Uh, I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. It's on the screen, and it's on page 1771 in the large print Bibles that I took from over there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Got to be careful what you do around this place. There's always a camera rolling. Hey, uh, evening friends, it is great to be with you. Uh, I would love to start with this little question. I want you to turn to someone near you, make sure no one's left out, just look around you, make sure that there's no one who's just sort of sitting near themselves, who's not in a conversation, but answer this question. Who are you? Go. Let's uh, gather back together. I think um, that's just about enough time for some existential speculation. And now I suspect that there were as many answers to that question as there were people in the room. Uh, We are all different. We are different from our fingerprints to our thoughts. God has made us. Each one of you, each one of us, as an individual, with an individual identity. But at this moment in time, at this moment in our culture, the news is that any one of us can take what God has made and reshape it into almost anything you want it to be. A human identity in this moment in time is being treated like Play-Doh. Everything is malleable, from your wardrobe aesthetic to your gender 
And that is to say nothing of the way social media allows you to cultivate and portray a sense of self to the audience that you have in whatever way you want. And while the world calls this freedom, psychologists and psychiatrists say this is a leading cause of profound confusion. Profound confusion because our identity as people helps us do life. It helps us make decisions and know how to behave in life. And as life constantly poses complex questions and and things, moments that require decisions, uh, for every person walking around with a constantly fluid belief about who they are and what they should do, just weighing options and making decisions becomes nearly impossible. And that's because of this. It's because who you are and who you think you are And who you want to be profoundly shapes every moment of your life. Now I'm sure that there are some who've walked in today who are feeling just a little lost or confused. And that deep down, while you had an answer to tell someone who you are, you know, in answer to that question at the start, deep down, I reckon there's people here who actually are just not quite sure don't feel right in their own skin, don't quite know where to stand, couldn't really bed down exactly who they are. I want to say to you, if that's you tonight, if you've walked in amongst us or you're watching this evening, I am so glad that you are here. Because this part of the scriptures tonight, uh, this section of the word of God that we're looking at, is a profoundly helpful antidote for the profoundly confusing world that we live in. And I'm going to offer you a place to stand tonight. I'm going to offer you an identity, something solid as a rock, that you can stand on for all your days. Now, there are many others who will have come in and you've got a measure of solidity. You know who you are. You know what you're doing in the world. But I suspect even tonight that you're going to feel a challenge. And if not a challenge, you're going to be able to go deeper into the way that God views us as this passage does shine a light on ultimate human identity. And if you're after a sneak peek of where we're headed, uh, then you're going to find that in our deep union with the ultimate human, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get stuck in. Uh, Make sure your Bible open on your phone or a Bible for real. Uh, We're going to see two things tonight that flow out of this passage. First one is our ultimate identity through faith. The second one being the joy of our identity. So we start on the search for our ultimate identity. What is it that God has for us in this text? And we start in verse 26 with the very first word, which is the word, so. And so we come to a moment tonight when you're sort of reading the Bible, you need to take notice of these little words so that you can take notice and read properly. We come to the word so because we come to a moment where Paul's going to start sharing conclusions and implications of the one main point that he's been going on about in the first three chapters of Galatians. He's been underlining again and again and again that we are not justified, we are not found as friends of God, we don't get into heaven by works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. And this was no more clear than in chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul wrote this. We know, can I just say too, uh, do you know that when your parents really want to tell you something, do you, know, do you know the secret? Do you know the parental secret? 
is to tell you three times. And eventually then, you, you hear. My mum still does that. Anyway, uh, just watch, look in this passage and see what Paul does here. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's one. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, that's two, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times. He makes it super clear. If you want to be just as if you have never sinned, you want to be right with God, you come to God by faith in Christ alone. And Paul has had to lay this out clearly in Galatians because of these troublemakers who come into the churches in the region and confused people with a false gospel message that's been saying to them, oh, Jesus is good, but real Christians, true Christians, authentic Christians, heaven-bound Christians, they obey the Old Testament law. If you want to be really friends with God, then make sure you do the Jesus thing, but also this and also this and also this. And Paul's been at great pains to say, no, 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 and no. And eventually, in chapter 3, verse 14, he said this, Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So in light of all of this, we come then bearing down on chapter 3, verse 26, where Paul takes a deep breath and he says, right, in light of all of this, therefore, so, here it is, our ultimate identity chapter 3 from verse 26 so in christ jesus you are all children of god through faith for all of you who are baptized into christ have clothed yourselves with christ if you trust in jesus if you are united with jesus by faith you are a child of god now, I have this little fear that when we hear that phrase, a child of God, that it could easily just pass us by like an hors d'oeuvre at a wedding. Just sort of drift past and we go, oh, how lovely. And then there it goes, off to the side. So we just want to park here for a moment and ponder what it is to be a child of God because there's something really beautiful about that little phrase. And it's what it captures about God. It captures the reality that God is not absent. God's not away somewhere. God's not obscure. God of the universe is not ethereal. He's not an idea. He's not a philosophy. And he's certainly not some crutch. Now, the God who reveals himself through Jesus Christ, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, is real. And relational. And he wants to be your father. And he wants to gather you up as his children. He's more than a mate. He's more than a friend. He's more than your favorite aunt. He's more than a neighbor or a colleague. Our God is father by faith. He, he's opened his heart to you by faith. He's welcomed you at his dinner table, welcomed you around his table by faith. And he's declared you to be a child of his, intimately connected with him by faith. This is the most high being of the universe, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who, who can end all things, who knows all things, who has more power than anything. He 
cherishes me. He cherishes you. By faith in Christ, he wants to draw you near. And he wants to be in a relationship with you of love and care. I can tell you I'm privileged to have four pretty awesome children. Uh, they're, they're, all, they're all awesome. I'm privileged to have four cool kids. They're all going to kill me. That's fine. I, I love them. I really do. And all that I have is theirs. All that I am is theirs. Uh, all, all that I will ever have is theirs. And they need only call. And I'm there. And friends, how much more the perfect father who calls you his child, the God of the universe. And so here is the solid rock upon which your identity is found when you trust in Christ. You are a cherished child of God. That's what you are. And all that God has is yours. For you are his precious child, just as you are, saved by Christ. You come to him as you are, and he says, welcome, be seated. And yet there's something even more profound here in these two verses, and it's hidden by this uh, new NIV that we're all using, and it's predilection to obscure anything masculine. Uh, in the old NIV, and if you're an ESV reader, uh, verse 26, you'll note, uh, is actually translated like this. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, now the language here has nothing to do with men and nothing to do with masculinity and nothing to do with manliness and everything to do with Jesus. For just as you are caught up into Christ and baptized into Christ, and clothed with Christ. You are united with Christ, and caught up with Jesus by faith in such a deep union that you are said to be a son. You are so connected with Jesus and bound up with Jesus by faith that when God sees you, he sees Christ, his son. If you remember back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Paul expresses this union uh, like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Uh, there it is right there, that amazing union that you can say when you look in the mirror, yet not I, but Christ in me and me in Christ. And so Paul is here describing the Christian reality that when you totally bank on Jesus for living the living of your life, for the salvation of your soul, for your present and for your future, then you are him, in him, as a son. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul expresses it like this. He says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So as one who is a Christian, your life is hidden with Christ. And when God sees you, he just sees Christ, his son, the one who died for you, the one who has cleansed you, the one who loves you, the one who's drawn you near to God, the one who has done away with your sin. Nothing to do with masculinity, but everything to do with the precious union you have with the ultimate son, whose life 
you live. And who in Paul's language here in verse 27, whose life you clothe yourselves with. But he's going to stretch this even further in verse 29. He says in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Now that's interesting. Because who else was Abraham's seed? You remember last week when Josh preached? Who was Abraham's seed? Jesus. But now you are also Abraham's seed. So hang on. We and Jesus, one. But not just that, as he goes on, and heirs according to the promise. Everything that God promises the Lord Jesus, he's also going to give to you as a co-heir with Christ. You are a joint recipient of every one of God's promises that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul's going to paint an even more shocking reality because he's not just talking to one group of people here. He's saying no matter who you are, you are welcome at the Lord's table. No matter what you've done, where you've been, how you've lived, what part of the world you're from, what color your hair, your eyes, your skin or anything is, you are all welcome. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, what does he say? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, there, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction. All are found as sons of God by faith in Christ and no one is excluded. Now on that last point, I think we read verse 28 and we think to ourselves, yeah, yeah, we understand that in our country. We understand equality of people. We understand everyone is welcome as a Christian. But to the Jewish ear, this would have been outrageous. Indeed, many scholars have observed that there was a Jewish blessing that emerged at some point in the first century. That was probably capturing what many Jewish people thought, uh, but maybe were praying at the time that Paul wrote, maybe not. Uh, but that Paul's written this verse to reverse this Jewish blessing. And here it is. The blessing that many Jewish people prayed was this. They prayed, blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me ignorant as a slave. And blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. And what does Paul do? He says, no, Jews and Gentiles, welcome. Slave and free, welcome. Men and women, all welcome at the Lord's table. When it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter who you are. You're welcome as a son of God by faith in Christ. So here is the deeper, more solid rock on which your identity can be founded. So you're not just a child of God, but by your union with Jesus, you are a cherished son of God the seed of Abraham and a co-heir with Christ of everything God has is yours. And one of my uh, heroes, Charles Spurgeon, reflected on these things in a sermon in 1861. And I want to quote this to you um, at some length. It involves some these and thys and thous. I'm sure that you are all able to understand what he's saying. Here he goes. Thou camest here today from thy toil, and thy bones have scarce forgotten yesterday's weariness, but thou art co-heir with him who rules all heaven. Thou art come here in poverty and wilt go home to Maccas in a narrow room. But thou art co-heir with him who made the world by whom all things consist. 
Thou, you, or you have come here weak and feeble, doubting, distrustful, and cast down. But I tell thee, weak though thou be, and in thine own judgment, less than the least of all, yet the same hand that wrote Christ, heir of all things, wrote your name with his until a hand that can be found that can blot out your Redeemer's name, you shall stand and you shall abide forever and ever. Come, lift up thine head. Envy no man his dukedom. Think no man's princeship worth thy coveting. Thou art greater than the greatest, for thou art joint heir with Christ. In dignified relationship, thou hast no superior upon earth. And except those who are joint heirs with thee, thou hast not an equal, since thou art joint heir with Christ. That's you when you trust Jesus. And that's amazing. But Paul has something more here for us. And it's not just that this is our identity, but that there is a joy to be found in this. This isn't just something that we think about and and sort of theologize about and see as an academic reality. No, there is a joy to be found in this. And it's found in chapter 4 in two little parallel sentences in verse 4 and verse 6. In verse 4, Paul lays out the objective saving work of the cross. And then in verse 6, he lays out a subjective relational work of the Spirit. So first, let's read verse 4 and 5. He says there, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We are redeemed by Christ's work at the cross. We are adopted in as sons through Christ with full rights of sons. There's nothing secondary about this. But then look at verse 6 and see the joy of our identity. He says in the start of verse 6, because you are sons, I'm just going to stop there because as you read through this whole section, the anticipation is palpable. As I was reading through this, I had this real sense of I was inside one of those TV commercials where they're saying, but there's more. There's a steak knife set, but there's more. There's a sharpener for your steak knife set, but there's more. There's a board to cut your steak on with your sharp knives. And that's what Paul's saying here. You're not only sons. You're not only heirs. You're not only united with Jesus. You're not only adopted and redeemed, all of which we can see and understand, but we can leave at arm's length intellectually. He says also here, you are recipients of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 6. He says, because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. By his spirit in your heart, God transforms you and sets you free. As we will see in Galatians 5 and 6. You are not only united with God, but your affections are moved by the spirit. Just as Jesus' affections are moved by the spirit as God works on your heart. And you come to know and experience God as father. 
the one who cares for you and loves you when life is good and when life is hard, the one who cares for you and loves you when life is full of hope and when life is just clinging on by a thread. And it's in one of those clinging on by a thread moments that we hear these words on the lips of Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to the cross. And Mark writes this in Mark 14. He says, Going a little farther, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. On the lips of Jesus, there is a moment of deep trust, of hope, of submission, and of great joy. Joy because his father knows that moment and loves him in that moment. And he knows the love of the father and trusts him in that moment. And friends, as the Spirit does his work in you, you too are able to cry out to the same God in the same way. The Spirit does not just reveal truth to us, and he does, but he enables you to cry out and speak and pray and develop an intimacy with God through prayer. And that is the joy of your identity of being a son of God. It's not just theological facts, although they are important. That is, by the Spirit, we are united into an active parental relationship with the God of the universe who wants to hear our cry and who speaks to us daily in the Scriptures. So who are you? Well, verse 7 would tell us this. So you're no longer a slave, but God's son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're a son of God through union with Christ. And as Jesus is Abraham's seed, so are you. And as Jesus is an heir, so are you. And as Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, so can you. You've been enfolded by faith into the eternal family of God. And this isn't just a mere academic reality. This is an intimate folding into sonship that grants you the right to call God your father. And he has adopted you and drawn you close. And he will never let you go. Yes, the language of Abba is that language of little children with their loving father, playing games and talking all manner of sweet things. But it's also the language that Jewish people use for their relationship with father that involved relational intimacy, but also honorable respect. And so as sons of God, each one of us, we relate to our God with both love and honor or respect. He desires to develop intimacy with us and us with him. And yet we sit under his authority as the one from whose hand everything flows. How do you live this out? How do you embed this experience, this identity, as something that's concrete and real and solid in a world full of malleable choices? Well, what the Spirit does in verse 6, he enables us to cry out to God, to call out 
to pray. We, we develop and experience intimacy with God as we speak with him. We cry out to him as he listens to our every concern and our every joy. And that's what prayer is. It is trusting and being vulnerable with God and his promises. Prayer is that that cries out honestly in hope and expectation. A prayer that calls out longingly for relief, but with thankfulness for God's care. And we develop intimacy as we live in consistent conversation with God as every day progresses. So instead of whiling away your time on music or podcasts or something else, when you, when you drive... Why not pray? Don't close your eyes. But do pray. When you're washing up, why not pray? When you are mowing the grass on that one occasion, pray. When you're on YouTube again, turn it off. Pray. If you feel closer to the people at the end of your socials than you do to God, pray. If you long to check your socials but not to cry out to God, then pray that the Spirit of God would do a grand work on your heart and transform it that you might cry out, Abba, Father, and be assured that he will because as one who trusts in Christ, you've found your place as son. Friends, legalists are led by the law. Hedonists are led by their desires. Materialists are led by their possessions. But sons of God, Christians are led by the Spirit. And he prompts our actions, he stirs our emotions, he guides our walk with God, he unites us with God as heirs forever. And as you keep in step with the Spirit, you can be assured that he will perfectly lead you into the will of God. So who are you? You're a son of God through Christ. And there is nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing more solid in this world than that. Amen. Um, we'll try and squeeze in a couple of questions. Um, first one is, how do you respond when a brother who once proclaimed God as his saviour, who was baptised and confirmed and was co-heir with you in Christ, now rejects him? Yeah. Um, a couple of different things. I think the first thing that you want to do is to pray fervently for that brother or sister in Christ. I never give up praying for someone who has turned their back on Christ. Uh, um, there are all sorts of theological conundrums that come with that. Uh, you know, in, in John 10, Jesus says, I'll never let them out of my hand. So we're sort of then wondering, were they ever in Jesus' hand? Did it look like they were in Jesus' hand? But they weren't really in Jesus' hand. How do, we, how do we ponder that? I think you can sort of tie yourself in knots there. Uh, I know a lot of people who have sort of, you know, wandered away from the faith, but... 
wandered back into the faith, perhaps people who have wandered away and then said, look, it wasn't ever really for me, as, as they've honestly thought about that um, themselves. Only God knows someone's heart. Um, so I think, first of all, pray for someone. I think, secondly, to um, uh, Christians have a bit of a reputation in the world of people who have walked away from church for dropping people. And, and I want to challenge you, if you know someone who sort of walked out of church and Jesus' life, don't, don't drop them as a friend. Actually try and keep up with them as a friend, uh, a little bit more than an Instagram like once a week. Uh, you know, not, not with intensity, not like we need to sit down and read Mark's gospel over 97 weeks, but, but actually just remain a friend and be the person who walks alongside and who is able to show them Christ. Uh, and because I, I really do earnestly believe that most people get to different points in their life where they find themselves floating again, wondering what is this life all about. And it's in that moment that if you have been able to persevere as a friend that you may be able to speak back into them and remind them of the gospel. Uh, I, I think that um, it's wise to have one really firm, strong conversation with someone. I don't think you can have 10 really firm, strong conversations with someone. I, I sort of describe it as you go to the wall once and you almost put your friendship on the line once and you, you just sort of say the hard things that the scriptures say to people who are turning their backs on Jesus. And then, and then once you've said those hard things, if that person's not willing to listen, you just walk in friendship and, and continue to pray and ask God to draw that person to himself. Um, it's no silver, silver bullet. And God needs to work in that person's heart uh, for them uh, to know him, but pray that God would be at work and that they would not harden their heart against the Lord. We might try and squeeze in one more question. Um, kind of along the lines, I guess, of if we are reaching out to God, um, uh, reaching out vulnerably um, as Abba Father but don't hear anything in return, um, what, what, can we, what can we think in that situation? How do we respond or what do we think about God in, in that situation? Yeah. Um, uh, so there a few things. I think, um, first of all, God is always revealing himself to us in the scriptures. And so as we pray, we need to have our Bibles open and be hearing what God has to say to us in the different situations that we're in. I think also it's helpful to um, share that sort of uh, pain and confusion with a friend. Uh, sometimes I think our um, our pain and confusion as we try out to God can sometimes blind us to the things that God may want us to know, see, hear. Um, and so actually being able to do that with a friend and go to a friend and say, hey, I, I need you to really pray for me about this thing because I'm, I'm struggling to connect with God. I'm struggling to um, see myself as his son and I'm struggling to pray and I need someone to pray with me and hold me. And, um, and we're going to see that later on in Galatians, I think, uh, where that encouragement to bear one another's burdens and to walk together is a really profound and important thing. Um, and, uh, and I think, too, sometimes uh, God just does call us to trust him. He's revealed himself to us in Christ at the cross. He's revealed every good thing that he has done to us and for us. And, and sometimes uh, we actually need to um, trust him in that moment in the same way that Jesus trusted his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, God didn't cry out at that moment, it's going to be okay, you'll rise in three days. Now he's, he's, he's left there to suffer death and the forsakenness of a son from his father without any voice, without any 
sort of answer to his prayer, but he just goes in trust because he knows the character of God, he, he knows what God is like, and he knows that his father uh, will look after him. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I think don't, don't keep praying, don't do it alone, look to Jesus, persevere.